welcome to the third episode of the Work It Out podcast, where we invite leaders and experts with a wide range of insights for you. From startups to global brands, we dive into the ins and outs of their industries to work out their formulas for success. On this episode, we have the pleasure to be joined by Jamal Makibis, co-founder and CEO at Sankan, the world's first gateway to on-chain carbon credits from Verified Climate Project. Despite having remarkable career opportunities and support, Jamal always felt a calling towards entrepreneurship. After 18 years of working within the corporate retail industry, a professional break allowed Jamal to reflect on his purpose and on how to leverage his corporate skills for meaningful change. This ultimately led him to co-founding Sankin, an easy-to-use platform to access the largest selection of climate assets for transparent climate actions and finance. Enjoy listening! All right. Hi, Jamil. Thank you for joining me today. For those of you who do not know, Jamil Vekibes is the CEO and co-founder of Sankin.io. Um, they have been gaining quite some traction on the German market um, and they have an interesting story up until now. So it's my absolute pleasure to have you, Jamel, uh, today on our podcast. Hi, Bogdan. It's a great pleasure to be here and I'm looking forward to our conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much. Me too. Um, so let's uh, go straight to our story. Um, I would like uh, to ask you about your journey, your personal journey as a founder and how you um, arrived at starting Sengen. Sure. Um, uh, well, an interesting one. I don't think it's the, the typical uh, founder one. So I guess um, the majority of my career, which was still very corporate, um, started in retail. Um, and that's where I spent the majority of my career, actually. So I worked for Deichmann at the very beginning and then later for TK Maxx. Um, I think retrospectively, that was an amazing school to learn from because in retail, there's the beauty is that you can take responsibility very, very early. So um, when I was 20 years old, I was able to um, have my first, first store as a store manager, looked after like around 12 people. And then in my mid-20s, it was like around 100, 850 people across the district. And then that increased to two and a half thousand people um, later in my career. Um, so that enabled me basically to understand like how operate, like how companies grow, um, how you have to um, well train your people, take them on the journey, um, and how to build operations from the bottom up. So it was a corporate, but because we started new in Germany, um, there was a lot to explore. So it was a startup vibe, I would say, but in a very kind of safe and secure. Um, corporate environment where there was enough money to um, keep us afloat. It wasn't the day-to-day -day management. So um, that felt like the the perfect preparation. And then I think towards the my end of 20s, um, I felt a certain urge for quite some time for my entrepreneurial side of things. But I was always like, I was lucky to work with amazing people. I always got new areas of responsibility. Um, so it took a while for me to actually get to that step. Um, and then um, at some point I took that break on the um, career break um, after deciding that it's now time to kind of reevaluate what impact I want to have in the world in, in the professional way, but also in the private way. Um, so I took some time off, um, looked at my core values, what purpose I want to have, um, how that actually works within like a corporate environment, and then became very clear that the entrepreneurial life is basically the one to go with. Uh, and that's kind of how we ended up with uh, Senken. Um, we co-founded it between the three of us and I actually joined in as the third person. So Adrian and Renee, 
um, started with the whole idea part in the beginning. Um, Adrian um, worked in the blockchain space at EY and Rene is from a digital consultancy and they basically started to work out the idea. And then I came on board for, I guess, the operational kind of business sense and starting to translate visions and ideas into an actual concept and potential like into reality, I guess, right? And, and that's kind of found each other um, as part of the second journey. So that's how it started. <laughs> Did you guys know each other before or how? What's the story about you guys meeting in the first place? Um, yeah, that's basically how we got here, right? So I know Adrian for five or six years. We have mutual friends here in Berlin. Um, so we were um, friends for quite some time. Not super close, but close enough to be in touch uh, on a regular basis. And that's kind of how it came about because as part of my career break, I actually um, finalized like a concept for a startup that I wanted to found in the HR um, in the HR space. And it was basically good to, to actually found that and start that. And alongside, I had regular catch-ups with Adrian while I was in Cape Town um, uh, about like the second idea and what that might be in the future. And that basically caught my fire straight away. And then over time, it became very apparent that it makes a lot of sense that we actually fully join forces. And Renee, I basically met um, in the process. Um, so yeah, mm -hmm. that's go together. And then I'm interested to find out about two points uh, specifically that, that you raised until now. So first of all, um, you mentioned your entrepreneurial spirit, right? And then transitioning from a managerial sort of operational role than a corporation towards opening your own business. How, what mindset or how do you uh, advise people that maybe have a dream like this or, you know, maybe have an intention to go about making yeah, that's a very good question and, and tricky at the same time, right? Because I don't think there's the formula, even though I think there are quite a few influencers out there who pretend that there's the one way as long as you follow the 10 rules. But um, I think I have to admit that I, I was super lucky at TKMX that because it's an American corporation, um, which is definitely different from a cultural point of view than the German mentality would be, that I was able to take responsibilities and I was enabled to make decisions at a very, very early stage, including the mistakes, of course, um, but that was a higher point. So I guess even though I was in a corporate environment, I had a lot of entrepreneurial in, like enablement, I would say. So I could definitely make my learnings, having said that, obviously, in a very secure environment, because it's not like if you make that mistake, the business ends because there's enough money to actually keep it running. But um, that was definitely helpful to get off. I would say that it was always somehow in me to con like continuous improvement is probably the one thing that I would say, right? You as an individual would need to be fairly keen to develop, continue to develop yourself no matter how good you think you already are in something. Plus the most exciting thing for you should be what you don't know yet, not looking back and be like confident what you've learned in the past. And I think that is probably the most crucial part that I would say an entrepreneur would need to have. Because you will always run into things that you've never faced before. And then that particular part of you and your personality will be able to help you through that um, by tapping into your network um, or just well, head down and learn. Go into a rabbit hole and do the hard work again and again and again, right? Um, 
stop learning really. And I think that's probably one of the main things I would say to become a successful entrepreneur. So we're talking about repetition, humbleness, and grit. Yeah, I think that's very good. Yeah, it seems also that um, you have taken the space from your career, what you've had before through your career break. How important was that career break and how do you advise leaders, you know, or, or professionals that are working full time that had to dy- have the dynamic, let's say lifestyle and work environment, um, is a career break important in order to make one of those switches? Um, I would say yes, but at the same time, I think it's an absolute luxury to be able to do it as well right because obviously it requires multiple aspects so if you already have a family potentially even multiple kids or even someone to take care of within your family or you don't have the 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 financial potential to actually just take some time off i mean germany is fairly good in looking after you even though what even though you're unemployed potentially but still it might not be the same to what you would you're used to so that's why i think Whenever you can, I would strongly encourage to take some time off Um, because I certainly went through different kind of phases, right? And that's probably fairly normal in in that sense where obviously at some point you're kind of happy that you made the decision. Then you realize, shit, now I'm without a job and I don't have a first time, which is the whole opposite of what I was always taught being brought up as in, make sure that you have a career, look after yourself and everything. And then you make a very conscious decision not to do anything, which never is nothing, but it feels that you're going into the unknown, so to say, and that it feels very uncomfortable for me to, when it became apparent that I was available on the market, at least as in not having a job, lots of like headhunters reached out and it was very, very counterintuitive to turn down very, very lucrative international offers. So, oh, don't worry, keep that one. I'm good. Um, I'll focus on myself. So you definitely need to have the strength to make those decisions. But as I've said, it was one of the best decisions that I could have made. And I definitely wouldn't have ended up here, neither with Stenken, nor with the other business opportunities that I have pursued since I started it. So um, I have another hospitality business that is really flourishing and so on that I'm doing with another business partner. And none of it would have been like possible if I wouldn't have taken the time out to rest, but then at the same time, orientate myself and really give myself the time and space to revisit my values and um, even the gaps and blind spots that I might've had over the years to actually start to tap into those. Um, so yeah, very, very good if you can is probably ridiculous. Yes, mm-hmm. yes and obviously, um, with Sanken, you you you've come quite a quite a way, I would say. So um, it's it's I would say um, an obvious success story, and I feel like um, you know going into your first venture and arriving where you are now, you know, with Sanken, it's most definitely, um, yeah. I mean, the results of hard work, you know, taking that break, but maybe um, a strike all brilliant and. I want to talk about the idea um, behind Sangen. So how did you arrive at, um, to, to tap into this niche? Um, what was the motivation behind building a carbon microblaze and building Sangen with the mission that it has right now? 
Yeah, yeah, I'm very happy to. I think to need to go step of back a few steps. So Adrian already worked in 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 a, like in a blockchain environment at Ernst Young back in 2016. So he basically started the blockchain department for Ernst Young for the German speaking markets. Um, so he got into touch with the space, but in a very corporate environment. I think that's a very important thing to add. So not in a very playful. Let's look at NFTs and uh, cryptocurrencies and see what happens. Uh, it was a very always very real life use case related um, the world that that he experienced back then he wrote two books about it um, about initial coin offerings etc and um, so he goes was in touch with that um, fairly early in and then when Adrian and Renee started to talk about the carbon spaces it was more about having a like a mission calculator in the beginning it was as easy as that so that's kind of for a second started um and then for like crypto uh, transactions initially. And then obviously if you do the first step, you do some transaction analysis and then you know how much someone consumed. Um, and then the next logical step was, all right, now we know how much it is. What can we do about it? Can we offset it? Can we do something good in the world to at least balance out what we might have caused? Um, and then that way, looking at the supply side and looking what we can actually do in the space, we basically stumbled into this hell of a mess of a carbon credit um, market. Um, and obviously, the more time you spend, we all went into our rabbit holes, like looked into it, and we found more and more problems um, that the system has, right? So the system is flawed and has probably been for decades because I think we all agree that we need super high quality and investments into the climate that actually have an impact and are not just lip service or pretending to do good. Um, and historically, it was the main money that was made was done through intermediaries, right? So the project developers that are kind of doing the hard work um, at the beginning of it and actually making sure that we can make up for what we've caused um, are getting very little amounts of money, actually, as quite often. And then the rest of the supply chain, um, without adding necessarily value, um, extracted uh, the additional margins, so to say, right? So there were three to five uh, intermediaries on average, and they take something between 40 and uh, 100% per intermediary in between um, until it actually um, reaches the market, um, which obviously doesn't add any value to the quality of the initial uh, asset and what it does to the climate. So it got more expensive, but it didn't got better. So that meant that a lot of mediocre to like poor supply came on the market because the product developers always got the very minimal amount so in a way it's probably at least half fair to say that they couldn't have done it way better because they wouldn't have got more money for it so therefore they were in the pickle right and that's basic in a nutshell what we're tackling here we want to make sure that we unlock um, massive flows of capitals into the right places where the planet and the climate needs it to then actually drive um, quality and impact um, to massively higher levels than these days to make sure that um, it, it goes in the right direction. So how does it work? Can you uh, walk me through the process? So let's say I'm a business, I go and sink and there's a marketplace. How does it work? Um, so yeah, more and more businesses um, claim um, to have like a carbon neutral phase at some point over the next couple of years, right? Most businesses are somewhere between 2025 and 2030. 
Um, and what you usually should do as an individual, as well as a corporate or institution, um, you should avoid what you can avoid from an emissions point of view. Um, and what you cannot avoid, you should reduce as much as you can. And then you're left with what you can't avoid, basically, right? And that is the part where uh, the concept of carbon credits comes in. Uh, it shouldn't be a way to, I guess, buy yourself out of it. It should just be there for whatever's left that you cannot do anything about. And then for that, you basically make sure that you invest into high impact um, climate projects. Um, that are um, uh, that could be reforestation, but it could be uh, mangroves as well. There are technical solutions these days as well. Um, so there are multiple different ways of um, doing that. So that's basically the starting point. So that's kind of how it starts. And then uh, a corporate would basically come onto the platform, have a look at our the available projects. Um, they are um, rated um, so that mm -hmm. you can first indication of what quality uh, you might find behind and this will basically so what you see today is kind of the first version of it and we will basically enrich that with more and more data over time and that's the beauty of the fact that the underlying um, highly sophisticated database is blockchain um, which enables us to connect as many data points with the carbon credit as we can um, what is important here because it might not be known to everyone Carbon credits in the, over the last few decades were traded as PDF certificates. So as a very much offline asset, which is obviously not that hard to manipulate. Let's put it pretty mm -hmm. Um So therefore, <laughs> by digitalizing it, um, you can actually enrich it with a lot more data and transparency so that it becomes auditable. Um, and that's basically our big claim that we want to bring the transparency and scalability to the market. So you would basically go through the platform, um, look at what, in what area in the world you would want to buy something, what quality standards that should um, be complying with. There are certain SDGs um, that are like, as in additional goals, I guess, that are attached to it. It's not only climate related, there might be social impact and so on and so forth. Um, and then um, you can basically purchase them um, and then use them to offset your company emissions. So the social impact is an added value or is that a separate credit that can be bought as well? No, that's just an additional value of it. Okay. I don't think it is that common knowledge yet because it wasn't as transparent in the past, so to say. Also, sometimes hard to prove. Um, but the ideal case scenario is that those SDGs are just a a very positive side effect of that climate investment so that you not only do good in the climate space but also make sure that the communities get the support that they would require um, to um, make sure that they keep developing themselves in the right direction as well. Indeed and so but my other question was also about transparency you mentioned transparency and I feel like in this space um, transparency is, is, is missing quite a lot you know um, uh, especially brokers and especially middlemen or traders have been suffering, you know, from a lack of transparency and different image problems, you know, some with some companies even being nameless, you know, Ponzi schemes and so on. How do you address that problem and what solutions do you propose or see coming in the market right now? I think the most important thing up front, we don't claim to have solved all of it. I think we very much look at it in a way that 
this is the journey that we certainly have started, but there's a lot to do in the upcoming month and years, realistically speaking, right? So what we're saying is we, we started to bring way more transparency to start with, but then we need so much more in the future. Um, luckily, um, obviously technology evolves over time as well. So um, we can actually add a lot of data these days to those um, climate projects that wasn't able in the past from satellite pictures to IoT related topics, as in it might be sensors in the ground that measure the quality um, in the forest, um, biodiversity can be measured way better than it was in the past and so on and so forth. So the, the part is, as I said, I need to go back. I know it might be a little bit annoying, but we are coming from a PDF. So the PDF world gives yeah. loans to zero transparency, right? Because it claims that there's something somewhere in the world where someone apparently did something, right? Um, and now it's about right. this to a stage where we can actually not only back that up um, historically, but also make sure that the data points that are attached to it gets um, refreshed, so to say, or updated on a regular basis, right? Because a forest that might have been there two years ago might not be there any longer. But how would you know if you have a PDF? You can never go back to that other than jumping on a plane and trying to find the forest. Uh, if you only stick to the forest examples, like to keep it a little bit easy for the podcast today. But that's basically the main problem that it has had in the past. You were never able to actually validate that or audit that retrospectively. Um, whereas now you can actually break that down to as if, like the specific tree even, right? Because every data point is so unique that you can actually identically identify um, what asset you invested in. So therefore it's very easy to audit, um, not without any effort, but it's easier to validate if this one actually exists or not, or has the same impact or not, basically. Right, right. And so, um, there's the movement of course coming into the business world or in let's say corporate clients because of SDGs, you know, and because of ESG reporting, do you see this model and do you see carbon credits, um, trading or buying also applying to individual users in the future? So me, for example, I would like to have an impact or, you know, invest with my own money in a, in, in a project is that possible right now or will it be possible in the future? Um, I can definitely envision that for the future. I think the only reason why I like, somehow hesitate is that this kind of revolution that we're now kind of undergoing at the current point in time um, means that there's still a lot of learnings to be made, right? So, and I think in order to make sure that it is ready for private um, or like retail customers for the individuals, we would need to make sure that they're as well protected as they can be, right? Um, and that means that from a regulatory and infrastructure point of view, we need to make sure that it is on a very, very high security level to make sure that um, no one um, gets affected by any kind of risk or even loss of like private wealth, so to say, right? So that's why I think at the moment, the, the, the main focus for us certainly is definitely the business and institutional investor side. Because they're the professionals, they know exactly how due diligence works. They know exactly, they have big um, departments in their companies that are doing nothing else than um, risk uh, analysis and so on, right? So um, those are the ones that we're tackling first. And apart from that, realistically speaking, private individuals 
will never have that much of an impact. I'm not saying no one should do anything, but the corporates, um, governments and so on, if they do the right things and invest the right amounts of money, then that can actually have an impact on the climate at scale. And that's basically what we need, not three credits here for a flight to uh, Mallorca or somewhere else that you might be going to that has an impact, but it will not change the world. <laughs> right. Um, do you do you think that it could? Because um, you made a great comparison with the stock market in the past and how it started for professional companies and how now, you know, it, it, it evolved in a place where everyone can invest or, you know, um, look at their own wealth and how to grow it. Uh, do you think this will be possible? Maybe is this a plausible scenario, let's say 10 years from now, you know, uh, while we're going on the road to net zero? Yeah, I would hope it doesn't take 10 years. Um, but yeah, mm -hmm. that analogy that I've used before is basically the perfect way, right? You need to start with the professionals, need to make sure that we learn from it um, and evolve it to a stage where it's safe and attractive enough to make sure that we can open it up to anyone that um, feels that they would want to get involved. Because certainly climate assets, especially the digital um, version of it, um, can certainly become a, a very good source of investment and, and wealth in the future. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. Um, so now we are um, in, a, in a time where the market or let's say regenerative finance market is quite nascent, quite small. Um, but you've been able to sink into raise seven, 7.5 million uh, about about uh, three months ago, that's, that's right? Uh, yeah, it was in December, like a little bit longer. In December. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the market itself is predicted to grow to around 100 billion by 2030. Um, what do you see happening in the refi space and um, how or what products and technologies will be invested in or um, come up in the, in, in, in the next 10 years? Mm -hmm. I think that's um, it's an interesting one to look at, like the potential market in a way, right? So I think we were um, very well positioned, and we were lucky to have like great investors on board that are with us on the right mission as well. Um, like yeah. some of them, like very sustainability driven. Um, so Obvious Ventures is our lead investor, and they are like truly invested into anything that has a the real impact in the world, and not just for an, from an investment case point of view. I think you still hear like two different sides here, right? And it feels a little bit like kind of how society these days treats stuff. So something is either really bad or the savior of the world. I don't think that society is very good in navigating gray. Um, so that's why you have a lot of people that are have high concerns or even uh, are very much against the carbon credit markets because they feel they don't have the impact that they claim. And that's probably rightfully so. But then the question is, should that mean that we don't bother and don't do it at all? Or do we try to fix it one step at a time and make it better so that it then starts to work for us, so to say, right? We don't claim that, like, we don't want to be there to give um, companies or institutions more reasons to emission even more. That's not the mission that we set out for, right? But at the same time, how can you enable massive sums of money 
um, to flow into the climate space. You can only do that if you make it attractive for investors to do so, right? If it's just a cost, then it yeah. will never fully unlock and scale. So therefore, if an investment becomes attractive, so if someone, technically speaking, can make money with investing into climate, that's the time where it becomes attractive for big investors to deploy billions to trillions into the space, right? And that, once achieved, is the true unlock to have real high quality impact because that's kind of where the, the wheel starts to spin, so to say, right? So that's basically what we kind of set out for and what the refi space is is focusing on. And to your point, in a, in a funny way, I'm kind of in between. So the, the predictions that you can read about from McKinsey and Boston Consulting and so on, uh, usually in the mark between 50 and 100 billion by 2030, right? Which is... Um, if, significantly bigger than it is these days. Um, whereas like, I think we're like in the area of two, two and a half billion at the moment. So a fairly small market in the greater scheme of things. Um, and I I think there are two scenarios that are likely. So I think we either find ourselves at 2030 and the, the, the voluntary carbon market became, well, grew to a size of, let's say, 5 billion. So insignificant or mm-hmm. we way past the 100 billion. So I don't think that that in-between scenario is a realistic one. So either it it's massively or it doesn't happen because we found other ways or uh, we decided that this is not what the world needs. Um, because there are definitely trillions, like institutional investors alone, they are ready to deploy trillions into the space once they have the right infrastructure. And that's basically what we set out to do to make sure that we can provide a regulated um, highly efficient and super transparent environment so that they feel safe and secure to start deploying the money into the right um in the right channels i would say and coming back to the refi part because it was a multi-layered question um the refi um so the refi part um has been around now for like let's say one and a half two years i mean obviously there were some other companies but like that's where we started calling it refi um standing for regenerative finance and there are a lot of players in the space. They're working on some exciting stuff. Um, there, we're still a little bit slow on the actual go live. So I would love to see more solutions out there. And I don't expect them to be perfect because I think we all need to learn together as we go. Um, so, but it would be good to see more and more solutions coming up that we then prove, improve collectively to actually bring it to a level that the space needs to um, well unleash and scale to a degree that we need. I think the major point, because it has to do with the um, transparency part, is everything around um, MRV, or in our case, DMRV, standing for Digital Measuring Reporting and Validation. So um, once, and there are like a few exciting um, startups out there, um, and there were some what, significant investments going into the space already. So everything that has to do with pre-financing, so forward financing of future high quality projects and the, the measurement and um, rating of those, those are probably some of the most exciting ones because they can help to unlock it because that basically provides the data layer and that means the transparency in order for um, even big investors to start to do and learn about their due diligence um, and risk analysis to make sure that they can start to deploy 
the money as they know it from any other asset class, to be honest, right? Because that's basically commodity tra uh, trading, which is not new in the world. It's just a new class, so to say. Um, so yeah, basically those are probably the ones that we need. And then one thing to add, and there are some players out there already, um, is anything that has to do with insurance. Um, so there are some um, startups out there who started to tackle the insurance part of it. And again, nothing new, nothing mind-blowing really, because it has been applied to all sorts of different kind of risk classes in the past, right? So if there's a tsunami, then there's an insurance for it. If there's a hurricane, then there's an insurance for it, and so on and so forth, right? And the same now is applied to the space. Having said that, that's still a fairly early stage because you don't have historic data, and that's what the insurances obviously need to actually calculate the risks in order to ensure it, right? But that can be a true catalyst for the space. Once insurance is in place, that will be another reason for um, big money um, to be deployed because they have well more certainty, I guess, that even if something happens, there's insurance that then ensures that even if the impact is not made of where they initially wanted to make it, it will be invested elsewhere to make up for the loss, so to say. And that's technically speaking what an insurance does in all other cases we are familiar with. I hope, sorry, that was a long one. It's, I hope it kind of happened. <laughs> no, it totally makes sense. I, I was curious if you at Sankin are planning or working into tapping this different space or are you staying to, to, uh, true to your core? Um, and, and in being, you know, a, a, a let's say broker, right, or, or bringing transparency to this space. <laughs> and we very much want to stay very focused and very narrow because we feel that that's one of the biggest risks in a new space and as a startup, anyways, to get distracted mm -hmm. by starting all sorts of different areas, <laughs> which are all valid, uh, hopefully, but um, there's still a distraction in the end. So that's why um, we're very, very committed to make sure that we deliver the first fantastic product market fits. And then from there, we can see like us, ourselves evolving, but it's important to nail the first couple of um, versions of the product before you go left and right um, of the initial track. So um, we are an aggregator for the carbon uh, or cl digital climate markets. So this could be renewable energy certificates in the future. This could be bio uh, biodiversity certificates. So we're not limited to the carbon space, but um, anything that has to do with climate and funneling money into the right space where it has the impact from a social point of view and from a climate point of view. So that's where we stay closer. And with everything else, we're always super happy to collaborate with, with anyone out there who is, I guess, shares our values and wants to have um, a, a really good impact in the world. And there are like some good players out there that we're collaborating with and will continue to collaborate with. Awesome, Jamel, sounds uh, sounds very interesting. Sounds uh, like we definitely need to keep an eye on Sankin and your developments there. Um, anything that you want to share with our listener or our audience before we go? That's a good one. That's probably the one thing that we're not super good at, right? I think we're very much focused on delivering stuff um, rather than just talking about and giving it the lip service. Um, what can I say? So we're definitely having what we internally call Senken 2.0 launching, which will be a couple of things. So it will be a rebranding, uh, which will most likely happen, let's say, around the July mark, um, where um, which we're going to combine with 
a few new product features as well, right? So it will be a true Web2 experience um, from that point onwards, um, which we feel is um, a massive step into the direction that the market actually needs because it should give the highest possible level of transparency whilst providing the easiest usability, so to say. Um, so that's basically what's what's happening um, over the next couple of months. And then the next stage is everything that has to do from a, with the, I guess, regulatory journey of becoming an exchange that can actually provide access in as many markets in the world as possible, because in the end, we're all in the same boat and need to tackle the same problems. Um, so yeah, but those are definitely some things that are that will definitely happen. Um, so we're super dedicated to bring real life use cases to the world that utilize blockchain, but actually have a true and measurable impact in the world. Right. Well, thank you for sharing, Jamel. Thanks for sharing your story and uh, um, Sankin's plans and everything that you do at the moment. Um, I find the mission super interesting and the vision as well. So for everyone who wants to support or see what Sankin does, make sure to visit the website on Sankin.io. Um, and I will definitely follow up with you, Jamel, at a later time uh, because we didn't get a chance to discuss also blockchain and you know how how that how this technology supports you and the, the transition to a sustainable future so definitely um keep an eye out for for our next uh, iteration of this podcast sounds amazing and um, thank you very much for the nice preparation and the good um, podcast i very much enjoyed it and yeah looking forward to our next one <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Work It Out. If you enjoyed today's episode, hit the like button and follow our social media channels to stay updated with the latest from PCN Podcasts.